I'm going to start this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, a scripture I hope you all know. It's certainly something that we should know. It's certainly something that we should meditate on and become more and more aware concerning the things that it's telling us, as do all the letters written to the church. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Notice that phrase, in Christ. Now, the, the old things passing away are um, the spirit. The Bible says that God telling us about the new birth hundreds of years before it was available said that he'd take the stony heart out of us and put in a heart of flesh and put in his spirit in us. That's just one way of saying that he's going to replace through the new birth experience, replace the old dead spirit that was on the inside of us. And all things become new mean all spiritual things. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the, the new things he's talking about are the new things that belong to us because we are in Christ or born again, born into the family of God. But this phrase, in Christ, is referred to throughout the New Testament some 140 times. Now, it doesn't always say in Christ. Sometimes it says in him or in whom or by him or by whom or whatever. But the, the thought is still the same. 140 times throughout the New Testament, the Bible tells us something about what belongs to us because we become children of God, what belongs to us and who we are because of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. We know that God intended for man to rule the earth in his likeness and in his image. Genesis 126 says that God's plan was just that. Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the works of our hands and over all the earth. God intended for man to have dominion on the earth. Now God never changes. So if God meant that for the mankind in the beginning, he means that for mankind now. Amen? Amen. So God never changed. But we know what happened. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 summarizes it for us. It says, Wherefore, by one man, as by one man sin entered the world. He's talking about when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Now, death, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Remember God told uh, Adam and Eve in the day that you eat thereof of the tree that they were forbidden to eat of, they would surely die. Well, they didn't die physically that day. So we can't be talking about physical death. But they died spiritually. Their spirits became estranged or separated from God. So it says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death, spiritual death, passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That word have is not in the original Greek. It's saying all sinned when Adam sinned. Now here's something that's difficult for us to, well, it's not, I, I shouldn't say it's difficult for us to comprehend, but it's hard for us to gain understanding about because there are things in God's system. There are operations that God has established that are a little bit foreign to us not so far into the Middle East because that's some of the same things that were instituted in the beginning still operate. But we're not used to one person carrying the weight for everybody. We're used to doing our own thing, carrying our own load, being our own people, and, and that type of stuff. But where it says death passed upon all men for all have sinned, literally for all sin, it's telling us, Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost. He's saying when Adam sinned, you sinned. Now, to the Western mind, that doesn't seem right. I didn't need a forbidden tree. Why should I have to pay the consequence for the one who did? Because God sets things up where people operate on behalf of other people. You may remember that in Matthew chapter 8, when the centurion comes to Jesus, saying, my, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy. Jesus said, I'll come lay hands on him and heal him. And the centurion says, you don't have to do that. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. 
I know what authority is like. I have servants under me and soldiers under me, and I tell them to do something, and they do it. He said, speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. Now, in Luke's account of that same experience, it wasn't even the centurion that went to Jesus. It was his servant that went on behalf of his master, the centurion. According to Luke, according to eyewitness testimony, the centurion never did even show up, never did even meet Jesus. But he sent one acting on his behalf. And that's another wrinkle or attribute of man's authority here on the earth or how dominion and authority work on the earth. Because one can operate on behalf of another as their agent. Well, Adam was the federal head of mankind. He was God's original creation. So when Adam sinned, it was just the same as you sinned. It doesn't mean that you did sin. That's why that word have is a little misleading. All have sinned. Well, that's certainly true. But not all have committed the the original sin that the consequence came upon mankind as a result. So God has a system whereby one designated by himself, God, can operate on behalf of all of mankind. And that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam reaped the result or the consequence of his disobedience, which was spiritual death, the light on the inside of him went out. The presence of God departed from him. He became spiritually dead. And that spiritual death is what passed on to mankind. That's why it's so important that Jesus was born of a virgin. Folks, if you go and I don't know if this kind of stuff interests you, but if you go and look at some of the writings of the early church fathers, first and second century into the, uh, the church age, you'll find out that one of the major things that they talked about, one of the major things, the main things that they spoke about was the virgin birth. See, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, he could not have bypassed spiritual death. He would have been born into the earth and come to the age of accountability just like the rest of us. And he would have partaken of spiritual death which would have made him an unworthy sacrifice for mankind. He had to be born of a virgin. Now, you'll hear things every now and then where people will say or churches will say or ministers will say, well, the virgin birth is not that important of an issue. And you couldn't be more wrong. It is the issue. I know some people are uncomfortable believing it because they're so used to going by what they see in their field. And I don't even put, them, put people down for that. I can understand where they're coming from. But if Jesus was not born of a virgin, he did not bypass spiritual death coming into this earth. And he couldn't have been a worthy sacrifice, a holy sacrifice for you and for me. Now, because it works like this, I want you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 tells us, gives us the first information that we have about when spiritual death began to rule on the earth. Now we know, chapter 3 tells us about how that Satan took on himself the form of a serpent. He had to have some kind of physical form to have access into the earth. Because man was created to dominate here in the earth. Man was given a physical body which is the sign of authority here on the earth. And so if Satan's going to operate in any way to accomplish his agenda, he's going to have to have some kind of physical form. Well, there were no people present for him to use or utilize. He could not break the the protective barrier that the life of God, the nature of God provides for us. So he took upon himself the form of a serpent, tempted Eve, talked her into doing what God told him not to do. Adam was right there with her. He listened to her voice instead of the voice of God. And there's a lesson to be learned in that. Thank God for godly wives. Well, you don't have to choose between listening to your wife and listening to God. But as a result, 
of their disobedience. The Bible says their eyes were opened and they saw they were naked and they were ashamed. I believe that's a reference to the light of God, the glory of God that clothed them, departing from them. And it tells us that God comes and talks to him about it. He pronounces a, a, a curse upon the serpent. He says, Cursed shall be the ground for your sake. And he delivers the consequences. He tells them, Here's the consequence of spiritual death that you've entered into through disobedience. So in chapter 4 of Genesis, it tells us the next thing that happens after the fall. Verse 1 And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. And bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now I want you to notice something here, folks. They weren't twins. So you've got a period of time, we don't know how long, but you've got a period of time taking place between Cain's birth and Abel's birth. So this is not just bang, 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 bang. But I want you to notice something. Did you notice in verse 1 it starts with the word and? Here's something not not many of us know about the, uh, or not many people know about the Hebrew language, particularly the, the five books of Moses, which make up the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But here's here's something that may help you to understand certain things about the Old Testament. And that's this. There's a Hebrew letter, it's not even a word, but there's a Hebrew letter that translates into the English, and. Now, and is always, and every time it's there, particularly at the beginning of a verse, it's God who dictated these truths to Moses, who made a copy of them to save for us. It's God talking about the continuity of a story. Now, in the five books of Moses... The first five books of our Bible, 65% of Scripture starts with the word and. Now, when you get to the prophets, that's not the same percentage. It's a lesser percentage. It's only 40%. And here's what that means. It means that if you want to read the story of Jonah, you don't have to read the story of Amos. Or you don't have to read Joel's letters to the church, to to the people of Israel. You can get the story, a standalone story, from the prophets. But if you're going to read the book of Genesis, you're supposed to read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy too. Because it's a continuity, it makes a complete story. Now you know as well as I do that none of us sit down and read that much at one time. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that's what's required. What I am saying is the, the, uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Give us a complete story of God's dealing with the Jews, dealings with Israel. Chapter 4 of Genesis is a pretty good example. Notice how many times it starts with and. Verse 1, and Adam knew Eve his wife. Verse 2, and she bare, again bare his brother Abel. Verse 3, and in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And on and on and on. Now I want to read some of the rest of this story. So let's keep going here in verse 4. It says, And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? What are you upset about? And why is thy countenance falling? If you do well, shall shall thou not be accepted? In other words, he's saying, if you do what I told you to do, wouldn't I accept you just like I did your brother? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. There are other translations that are a little better than uh, the English, the King James English. Several translations say something like, sin lieth at the door with the desire to control you, but you must learn to control it. It's talking about having dominion over sin. The presence of sin is there, but we're supposed to exercise dominion over that sin. Verse 8, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? 
And God responded, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, folks, there's a lot we don't know about this story. There's no way for us to fix a timeline on it. But there are certain things that we, that we have to recognize and understand. First of all, there's not just four people on the earth, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. He talks about going different places and people, everyone that he comes in contact with will want to slay him because of his wrongdoing. So what this story has to be telling us then, what we can conclude from what we do know, is that this is what God wanted us to know next, following the fall of man, in showing how, according to Romans 5.12, Spiritual death passed upon all men. What that means for us or to us is that when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, there were perhaps generations of people on the earth in different places. But it didn't change the fact that Adam's actions, his disobedience, stood as, uh, stood as disobedience and the consequence of that disobedience came on upon all the men on the earth. Everybody that was here. Notice that Cain knew his wife. It's talking about the continuity of the story. His wife had to come from somewhere. The way that we usually read it and some of us used to think is that there's four people, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And God replaces Abel with Seth. Well, that doesn't fit what's going on here. That doesn't fit what, I, what um, Cain's concern is. And it sure doesn't fit where it says Cain knew his wife. Where'd she come from? Now, what else do we, do we see in this story? One thing that we see is that Cain and Abel must be old enough to stand on their own. Because you don't see Adam anywhere in this story. You don't see this as being a family sacrifice. You don't see Adam showing them how to do it. So they've got to be adults in their own right. So how much time has passed since the fall and this occurrence? We don't know. Well, then why, if time has passed, why is this the next piece of the story? Because this is what God wants us to see about how in Adam we were. It talks about the people that were born of Cain's lineage. But it also tells us about his concern that people out there somewhere, wherever he goes, will come against him and attempt to kill him. Do you see what I'm trying to say here, folks? There could have been hundreds of years, thousands of years, that Adam and Eve operated in righteousness And in the life of God. Which makes me wonder even more. If you're used to what you're doing. Why in the world did you listen to the serpent? You know what else is possible? It's also possible that there were times where the Satan came to tempt them before. But were unsuccessful. Like I said there's no way for us to know some of these things. But folks, I want you to point out, I want to point out to you and I want you to see things should have been a lot different than what we normally think they were.
since Adam and Eve were the federal head, the beginning of all mankind, whoever else is in the world that, that Cain is concerned about for himself, they had to come from Adam and Eve. So what happened? When Adam and Eve fell, let's assume that there were generations, which there had to have been, for these scriptures to make sense. When the light went out for Adam and Eve, that would of necessity mean the light went out on the whole earth. Boy, you talk about a cataclysmic event. Somebody far removed by great distances, the light would have, been, would have gone out on them just as real as it did Adam and Eve. They would have had no way to know what was going on. There was not universal cell, cover, cell coverage towers there. But in an instant of time, one moment, everything changed. Why? Because the whole world was in Adam. The whole world was in Adam. Something else we need to see here, the story of Cain and Abel before we go. Notice that there was an additional curse that came upon Cain because of his own actions. Chapter 3 had already told us before Cain and Abel were ever born, apparently, that when they fell, when Adam and Eve fell, there was a curse pronounced on the ground and upon the serpent. But here it says that God is delivering a second curse to Cain because of his own actions. In other words, his personal sin brought a consequence too. Let me find it and read it again. Verse 11, And now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. And when thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. That indica indicates a change to me, doesn't it, you? And that was, that, that was Cain's thing. He was a farmer. But now because of his own action, he's not going to be as good a farmer. Can you understand how the Bible is trying to give you the story in the way that it is? He's trying to identify these are the important points. It's certainly not everything that happened. And the story is not wrapped up in just three or four chapters. These are things that went for long periods of time, apparently. Because there are cities in other places that Cain will, will visit. There are peoples or tribes of peoples that he's concerned about once they find out about him and what he's done. They'll try to kill him or slay him. And another interesting point, before we finish with this one, is notice that Abel's blood spoke. Let me find it again and read it to you. He asked where your brother is. Verse 9, the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? Cain answered and said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Notice verse 10. And God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood. The blood speaks, folks. The voice of your brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And because of that, he was cursed from the earth. Or his time in the earth was cursed. Blood always speaks. In this case, Abel's blood spoke against Cain. But in our case, the blood of Jesus speaks for us. Now, Abel must have been a good guy. He was certainly interested in, in obeying God because he brought the right kind of sacrifice. But you know, that raises another question for me. How did Abel know the right kind of sacrifice and Cain didn't? They would, have been, they would have both been privy to the same information, which obviously came from Adam and Eve. When the Bible says that Adam and Eve 
after Adam and Eve fell, God made clothes for them, skins of animals. Where do you get an animal skin? He must have shown them then and there about the sacrifice that they'd have to make because of their transgressions. So Adam and Eve would have told Cain and Abel the same information, just as they would have had to pass it on to any and all of their children, however many generations there were, before and after. Could it be that Cain decided that God's way didn't suit him? And so he went against what he knew was acceptable unto God and tried to work his own way in the door. See, that's what makes the most sense to me. Because God doesn't tell him. He doesn't come to Cain and say, well, maybe you didn't get it from your parents, so let me tell you how this works. He comes to him and says, what are you upset about? You knew I wouldn't accept this kind of offering. It has to be a blood sacrifice. He doesn't cut Cain any slack whatsoever. That says to me that Cain had to have known, but wanted to do it his own way. How often does that work with God and the things of God? So he tells him, God tells him clearly, if you do right, if you do what I've already told you, is acceptable unto me, I'll accept yours just like I will Abel. See, Cain wanted to make it about him and Abel. God, you're not being fair. You accepted my brother's offering and sacrifice, but you didn't accept mine. And God shoots that down right off the bat. You know what's acceptable unto me. Do right, and I'll accept you just like I will your brother. So what did Cain do? The Bible says Cain and Abel were in the field, and Cain slew him. It's an accepted tenet in Judaism, even though the language does not actually spell it out or, or define it, give us some kind of definitive understanding. But it indicates that Abel became Cain's sacrifice. It indicates, and like I said, it's accepted in Judaism, that Cain slew Abel just like he would have a bull or a goat. He sacrificed Abel in his blood. Now this shows the, the extremity of Cain's rebellion. When God says it's about shedding blood, Cain says, okay, you want blood? I'll give you blood. And he makes a sacrifice of Abel. Folks, I, I hope I'm making myself clear here, and, and I'm not saying that it has to be this way, but I am saying that the Jews accepted this to be the way that they believe. That means he would have offered him on an altar placed him on an altar, just like any blood sacrifice he would have been making. He uses human blood because of his anger at his own shortcomings. And it's all part of the story. This, again, this is the next thing that God wants us to know. It's not the next thing that happened chronologically. But these are the things that God wants us to know. So as it reads to us, even though we know there are gaps in time, as it reads to us, man fell. And the next generation that we know about enters into murder. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Just like Paul wrote. Now there's another place that the Bible talks about being in someone else or someone's actions counting for you. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 1 just to give you the context of what's being spoken. 
For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. This is in Genesis chapter 14. You remember Abraham took uh, uh, when Lot and the people of the city of Sodom were taken captive. He took 318 of his own servants, those that had been born in his house, and he made an attack upon the enemies that had taken his nephew. And on the way back, Melchizedek comes, and he offers a sacrifice to him. And the Bible will tell us what that is. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now, I want you to notice something, folks. It says that Abraham did it willingly. It was not required. And this is the thing that makes the tithe outside the law. See, a lot of people want to say the tithe is a part of the law. Well, it's not. It didn't start because of the law. It was entered into by Abraham hundreds of years before the law of Moses ever came around. Now, the law of Moses codifies how the tithe is to be made. But the tithe started way, 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 way before the law. So the tithe is a memorial. It's something that Abraham chose to do, not because he was commanded. It was something that he chose to do to honor God because of God's grace and his mercy upon him. Because of the blessing of God that was upon his life. And the Bible talks about Abraham being our father of the faith. It talks about how we are to follow his example. Well, we follow his example on believing God. Why shouldn't we follow his example on honoring God? And that's what the tithe is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a command. When we understand that God looks on the heart and not on the outside appearance, it's not just the action of writing a check for 10% of your income. But it's the heart that Abraham had to, to honor God. That's when the tithe works, when we honor God with it. Well, let me start again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother. Now, I want you to look at the... the uh, type of Jesus this is without father without mother without descent having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like unto the son of God abideth the priest continually now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils and verily they that are of the sons of Levi who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. That is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better or the greater. It's saying Melchizedek was greater than Abraham who had a covenant with God. Now, folks, there are things we don't know about this story, too. Who was Melchizedek? It's easy to say it was a pre... Well, I won't use that word. It's easy to say this was Jesus appearing unto Abraham before he was born into the earth. But it calls him a man. How could he be a man without father and mother or descent? I don't have the answers, folks. Just things for us to consider. And he was obviously greater than Abraham or else his blessing wouldn't have stood for anything. It would have been of no worth or value. The lesser cannot break, bless the, the greater. It's always the greater that pronounces the blessing on the lesser. Verse 8, and here men that die receive tithes. So tithing was still going on at that point in time when Paul wrote the letter. We know it was before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed because there's no mention made of any of Paul's writings or any of the others. 
But notice Paul does not say concerning verse 8 that people are wasting their time bringing tithes because we're saved by grace. He said, here men that die receive tithes. There's no way it would be impossible for tithing to be contrary to God's plan and purpose and the Holy Ghost not make mention of it here. So he says, here men that die receive tithes, but there he, Jesus, receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Notice verse 9, and as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Here's another example of where something was counted, in this case, for, a, for Levi's good, for his benefit, because he was in Abraham who paid tithes. It's a recurring theme, folks. Sin, spiritual death passed upon all men because of Adam's sin, because all men, all of mankind was in Adam. Even those that had already been born when he fell. They were in Adam as well. Here it talks about Levi being in Abraham. Abraham's action of honoring God by giving tithes to Melchizedek stood for all of Israel. Because Levites don't play, the Levites don't pay tithes. The Levites lived off of the tithes and the offerings of the people. But through Abraham, they're blessed just as if they had offered their own tithes. You see the point he's making? Turn with me now to Romans chapter 5. Verse 17. For if, literally since, for since by one man's offense, talking about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden again, remember it was verse 12 that we found out By one man sin entered the world, talking about Adam, and death passed upon all men because of it. For if by one man's offense, death, spiritual death, reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. By one, Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he became man's substitute. And please understand that Jesus was not our substitute until he did go to the cross. His earthly life, his earthly ministry, show him to be an example for a righteous man operating in the earth. A man untainted by sin. It provided a benefit in his own life. And because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost to minister, it provided a benefit for everybody that came in contact with it. In the early chapters of John, I think it's John chapter 2, where Jesus goes to the wedding feast at Cana, his mother knows something about Jesus either being able to do the supernatural or supernatural things happen about him. Because when she finds out that the wine is gone, she comes to Jesus and Jesus tries to put her away. She says, Jesus, we're out of wine. Now, according to Jewish tradition, she must have been a relative. This wedding must have been a relative of Jesus and Mary and or Mary. Or else she wouldn't have had the position that she did have. That was all family business, family activity and so forth. So when she comes to Jesus... And says, we're out of wine. Jesus says, woman, what do I have to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Then she turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, folks, you can't make sense out of that reaction unless she's used to Jesus' words producing things. And why wouldn't they? See, we think Jesus grew up as a child first and then a teenager And then comes to the place, never sinned, never committed any wrongdoing. Because there was no presence of sin, there was no experience of sin. 
he was able to live a, a sinless life, operating in righteousness even before he was called and anointed to, to minister to the world. Well, what did that produce? Well, what does the Bible say it should produce? The blessing of Abraham includes a lot of good things. And if anybody would have been in line for the blessing of Abraham, it would have been Jesus. Because he was the only person that did, or did then or has ever now kept the law without breaking it. And remember, Paul tells us by the Holy Ghost, if you break just one little part of it, you're guilty of the whole law. Jesus never transgressed on any, any point whatsoever, major or minor. So what, why wouldn't the blessing of God, why wouldn't what God promised Abraham and the Jews through obedience, why wouldn't that come his way? Why wouldn't that mean that things, circumstances, conditions were changed on Jesus' behalf, even by his words? She associates his words with power or authority. Well, she's had a front row seat to it. So when she responds to the servants at the wedding feast, whatever he tells you to do, do it. That shows us even before Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost to minister to others, but in his early life that Mary was a witness to. The supernatural was certainly possible. Now, I don't want to paint the wrong picture. I don't want to try to say that Jesus was the richest man on the earth. He was the Bill Gates of his day or whatever else. The blessing of Abraham might have made for somebody else. But I can guarantee you he never went without. I can guarantee he and his family never went without. And I can guarantee that any sickness or disease that might have attempted to attack him didn't stick. Otherwise, why would his mother say what she said? I mean, there's a lot of things she could have said. But what she did say has to mean that she's used to unusual things taking place because of what Jesus says and does. Well, apparently God directs him to take action, so he turns the wine into water, or the water into wine. Well, I had the two elements right at least. Come on. <laughs> so Jesus becomes our sa sacrifice and our substitute on the cross. Now, the Bible defines what that sacrifice and substitute would be. We know that the Old Testament ritual of sacrifice, the Day of Atonement sacrifice particularly, was very specifically outlined so that Israel would know what it stood for. We know these things are types and shadows for us. So the Day of Atonement sacrifice means there were two animals. Two animals that were wrought, both equally without blemish. They had to be examined by the, the high priests. And they were. And then lots were drawn. It was a random choice. Which one would fulfill what, uh, one of two purposes? One we know of was the sacrifice itself whose blood was offered on the altar. But the other one that we don't seem to pay too much attention to was called the scapegoat. Now the scapegoat was used to bear away the sins of the people. See, the blood being offered on the altar wasn't sufficient. That would have just been half a sacrifice that was required. It would have put Israel in the same condition as Cain whose sacrifice and whose offering was rejected by God. So the scapegoat was brought to the high priest and he laid his hands on the head of this, this bull or goat or ram, whatever it was. He laid his hands on, this, on the head of this animal and he pronounced the curses of sin. Every sin that could be thought of. They had this giant list that had to be memorized by the priesthood. It was a ritual thing. It wasn't just a fly by the seat of your pants type thing, pray a simple prayer and, and let's go. They pronounced sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. They worked their way through the whole list 
for the purpose of placing or transferring the sins of Israel, all the sins that were on the list that had been enumerated and identified, were placed on the head of the scapegoat. And then the scapegoat was taken out into the wilderness for the judgment of God to fall on it out there. Now, it doesn't tell us how the judgment of God fell. It's certainly easy to imagine that wild beasts could have killed it. It's also easy to identify or consider that the fire of God fell on it out there just like it did on several other occasions when the priest would offer sacrifice. We don't know. It's not like anybody uh, stayed around to see. The priest just delivered it out into the wilderness, turned it loose in a place that they could not, they would be assured it couldn't make it back to town, and the judgment of God fell. Then, after the scapegoat was dealt with, then the sacrifice was made of the other animal, whose blood, because of the sins having already been placed upon the scapegoat, where the blood of the lamb was considered a worthy sacrifice and it was placed on the altar. The Bible says Jesus did all these things for us. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 that Jesus entered into the heavenly holy of holies one time to offer his own blood, just like the priest had to do on the earth. Well, then there has to be a scapegoat activity or a scapegoat part of the sacrifice too. You can't just fulfill one half of the type and think that's going to work. So the scapegoat part was why Jesus had to go into the belly of the earth, the pit of hell, for three days and nights. That's where the judgment of God fell. That's where the judgment of God fell upon him. Psalm 88 which was written by Jonah in the belly of the fish, speaks specifically of different judgments and punishments that would come on the Messiah. And remember, Jesus said in John chapter 3, I think it's verse 17, that the only sign to given unto, my, uh, unto mankind, unto that generation, would be the sign of Jonah. Jesus is identifying Jonah's experience as a type of himself. Now, what was this judgment that fell? What was this punishment that had to be paid? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. I, I don't see anything in the scripture that identifies it. But we know that it had to be paid. Why three days and nights? Why? Jesus knew he'd be raised again after the third day. He clearly taught his disciples toward the end of his earthly ministry while he's still being a, an example for us rather than our substitute. He knew that it was going to be three days. Jesus wasn't surprised about anything that he was going to face, any judgment that would fall, or how long it would take. He wasn't surprised by any of that. You remember, he got on to the disciples for not believing him after he was raised from the dead. He said, I clearly told you these things. Why weren't you looking for me? I guess the answer to that is it was more than they could comprehend. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says that Jesus was delivered for our offenses and raised again, King James says, for our justification. But the word for means time not purpose. So literally it's saying, or should say, Jesus was delivered for our offenses and raised again when we were justified. Folks, if Jesus was raised again when we were justified, then that means he had to be made spiritual death. His substitution or substitutionary work had to include being made sin. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us or in our place as our substitute. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If Jesus didn't die spiritually, you can't be made righteous. If Jesus did not die spiritually, 
then you and I could not have been made righteous. Now let's think a little further on that. If Jesus died spiritually, if Jesus died spiritually just like Adam and Eve died spiritually in the Garden of Eden, if Jesus died spiritually just like all of mankind dies spiritually when they come to the age of accountability and reject Jesus, then what life raised him up? Couldn't have been his. It couldn't have been his. But Jesus, as our substitute, made a sacrifice that was worthy for all of mankind. Not just Adam's sin, but Cain's sin too. Not just personal sin. We all get that. We all know that we have sinned. And that demands a sacrifice. And we accept the blood of Jesus as certainly having done that. But the original sin had to be paid for too. That which opened the door to spiritual death from the beginning had to be paid for too. And Jesus paid the price. He made a redemption. He, he obtained a redemption. That makes salvation, righteousness, available for every person on the earth. Even himself. Jesus became a worthy sacrifice even for his own redemption. And the Bible tells us that the life of God came back in and, in and upon him. Loosed him from the bonds of spiritual death. The separation from God. The torments of hell. Loosed him. Jesus said himself that he took the keys of hell and death from Satan. Was raised again from the dead. Spiritual death. Stopped by the tomb to pick up his body. And went into the heavenly holy of holies to offer a sacrifice. An eternal sacrifice of his own blood. Remember when he was on the earth. When he came after his resurrection he came back to get his body. He appears to Mary who's around the tomb. She recognizes who, who he is when he speaks. And then he says don't touch me. For I have not yet ascended unto my father and your father. My God and your God. So the only thing he stopped over for. Was to pick up his body and tell Mary to tell the disciples that he's alive. This stuff almost seems like a fairy tale in some respects, doesn't it? But it's not. It's reality. It's reality. So Jesus appears to his disciples, breathes on them. The church has begun. The born-again experience takes place. Interestingly enough, the Bible, when it talks about Jesus being the firstborn or first begotten from the dead, there's another scripture that's referred to all the way back into, into one of the Psalms of David where God says, This day have I begotten thee. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This day have I begotten thee. Most people that have heard that verse of scripture think that God's talking about Jesus being born into the earth, but he's not. He's talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. And God said in relation, in connection with Jesus being raised from the dead, that it was a born again experience. This day have I begotten thee. The day that he was begotten that God is talking about and the pleasure that Jesus had brought to his father was the pleasure of paying the price as our substitute for the original sin and for personal sins. Jesus was the firstborn, the first begotten from the dead. That means you and I have the same new birth experience that he does. That's why we're joint heirs with Christ. Now, we're not joint heirs because we're equal with him in our work here on the earth. Who could be equal to that? We're not joint heirs with Christ just because we've been made righteous. We're joint heirs with Christ because we've got the same born-again experience that he does. We entered into, we entered in, he re-entered in to the family of God by the same new birth experience. He paid the price even for himself. 
What does that mean? Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me remind you of what we just read in Romans 5, 17. For since by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. It's saying it's more of a certainty that we'll reign in life through righteousness than it was that spiritual death was brought upon the earth by Adam's sin. You are more spiritually alive in comparison and the freedoms that come with that new birth experience is even greater than the bondage of spiritual death that held us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. Paul said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. If God's the Father of glory, what are the sons? Glorious. That God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding or your spirit being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. The Bible says we have the same power residing in us that raised Jesus from spiritual death. Verse 22, And has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. He's the head where the body. Does the head have more authority than the body does? And it's the same life that the head and the body experience. So it is with us. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Chapter 2. And you hath he quickened. Here where it talks about in the preceding verses that we just read, that Jesus was raised from the dead. By the Spirit of God, it says, and he raised us too. Just as Jesus was made alive by the power of God, so were we. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past, before you were born again, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, the unsaved. Among whom also we all had our conversation, our manner of life, in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Folks, God knows exactly who we were. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and has raised us up together. That place where he was seated at the right hand of God, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that's named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come, that's where he sets you. And has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. Folks, how in the world can we possibly operate in this world and think that we are so worthless and so out of God's favor when the Bible says it'll take God ages to show you how good he is? Now, I'm not sure what eternity is going to be like. I'm not sure what heaven is going to be like in its entirety. But I know for certain that the Bible says it's going to take him ages to show you how good he is. It, he's planned ages. Set aside. A, uh, you know how you have to make time for a vacation? If you don't, it won't happen. God has blocked out ages for you. 
He's blocked out ages to show you how good and loving and kind he is. So no matter what we might be tempted to think about ourselves, God set aside ages for you. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10. Please notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Folks, how much sense would it have made for God to create Adam and then Adam come back the next day and say, I don't like how you made me. I didn't want dark hair. I don't like how how I've been made. Now I can mind and understand it if Adam said, I don't like how you made Eve. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. Then how foolish is it to think that God didn't make us through the new birth exactly what he wanted us to be? You are his workmanship. When we complain about ourselves, when we compare ourselves with others, and other situations, other people, whatever the case might be. When we listen to that junk that the devil brings to us, it's us taking sides with him against how God made us. But when we start taking the works, the influence of the devil and answering it by saying, I don't know what you're complaining about, Mr. Devil. I'm exactly the way God wanted me to be. Then we start entering into some things that really are ours. You are his workmanship. God does not make junk. You can never be junk. Your behavior can never make you junk. Your behavior, even your sin, can never make you anything less than the workmanship of God. It can never rob you of righteousness. It can never bring you into disfavor with your heavenly father. It can never shorten the ages that it's going to take for God to show you how good he is. And that's the absolute righteousness. The perfect redemption that Jesus paid for, for you and me. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being, something that never existed before. Adam was a man made by God that fell. We are men and women raised up into eternal life by the sacrifice of Jesus. We are a brand new, unique species of being. And we're his workmanship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the Holy Ghost who teaches us and guides us and shows us who we are in you. We love you, Father. And our love grows even more and more when we see who you destined for us to be. When we recognize that our life is the life of Christ, when we recognize that our new birth experience is the same as Jesus experienced on our behalf, when we recognize, Father, that we are exactly who you made us to be, open our eyes even more, Lord, so that we see and know who we are in him. Thank you that we are in Christ. More than conquerors. And in Christ we have overcome the world. 
even as Paul wrote to the church, sin no longer has dominion over us in any way, in any respect. Show us more, Lord. Show us what it means to be righteous. Show us how to do the works of Jesus because we are of him. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Oh, that our eyes would be open to the righteousness of God that we have been made. Amen. Let's all stand. Before we go, let's lift our hands to our Heavenly Father and tell Him how much we love Him. We worship You, Father. We thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy. Thank You for making us just the way that You wanted us to be. We're not a mistake. We're not failures. We are Your workmanship. We are working out our own salvation in the power of God. We are growing spiritually. We are growing in love. And we're increasing in faith. Thank you, Father. Have your way in us. That we might follow Jesus' example. And do the works that he did. For it's in his name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us at Healing School tonight. And you're dismissed.